Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to Farm Food Facts for January 9th, 2020. It's our first podcast for the new decade. I'm your host, Phil Lempert. Remember to watch the new short film from USFRA, 30 Harvests, to see just how farmers provide a source of healthy food while addressing environmental concern for current and future generations. Go to usfarmersandranchers.org to view this impactful and heartfelt film. Today, we're going to talk a lot about sustainability for wearables. Later in the podcast, we'll go to Texas to chat with Jeremy Brown, who's an organic cotton farmer. But first, Avi Garbo is with us, a nationally recognized environmental leader, lawyer, and advocate with decades of experience tackling the most critical threats to our air, water, and land. Honored by the National Law Journal as an energy and environmental trailblazer, Avi currently serves as Patagonia's environmental advocate, helping to sharpen and strengthen the company's voice and vision on environmental and conservation issues as Patagonia pursues its mission, being in business to save the home planet. Nominated by President Obama and confirmed with the unanimous consent of the Senate, Avi served as general counsel at EPA from 2013 to 2017, the longest to ever hold that position, and prior to that, served as the agency's deputy general counsel. Avi received the Robert F. Kennedy Award for Public Service from the University of Virginia School of Law and serves on the Board of Trustees for RARE, an international conservation organization, and on the board of the Organic Trade Association. Avi, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. Pleasure to join. So, Avi, I know one of your passions, um, as is Patagonia's, is regenerative organic agriculture. Give me the 101. What does that really mean? Well, regenerative organic agriculture, I think, stems in principle from the notion that soil is life. And so we start with the premise that soil health is necessary, if you will, for planetary health. And we look to build on the USDA organic standards and add to that, I think, some requirements that really focus on improving the health of soil But there are also two other pillars that I think are important as part of regenerative organic ag, Um, and those are uh, social fairness. So we think about the well-being, of course, of the farmer and his or her workers, and then also animal welfare. So we're concerned about the the well-being of of the animals on the farm. So with those three prongs, soil, social fairness, and animal welfare, we're really looking at the emergence of a new certification that, again, as I said earlier, uses the organic as a baseline and really builds on top of that for these durable benefits. Is it fair to say, Avi, that this is a much more holistic approach than has been taken so far? I think so. And again, there are a lot of perhaps regenerative practices that themselves do not have organic as a baseline. Similarly, there are organic practices that don't include all of the features, if you will, that the regenerative organic certification is here to promote. So it's a way, I think, of merging in many ways the benefits of both of those things uh, and allowing us to really focus on the production of healthy food that is not just healthy for our bodies, but also good for the communities, good for the workers, and certainly good for the animals too. 
And I'm glad you brought up food because most people who think of Patagonia think of the apparel. Think of, of this great line of, of high quality apparel when you want to walk up the side of a mountain. Talk to me a little bit about the Patagonia provisions. Yeah, so Patagonia Provisions was started a, a couple of years ago. That is a, a line of food products as well as beverages that's really being built upon the regenerative organic market. It, I think in many ways, uh, it's, it's at the beginnings of, of that phase and really looking to develop a marketplace both for Patagonia uh, Provisions branded, but also to promote and, and distribute uh, others who are in the regenerative organic market. So we do things like, as you might expect, energy bars. They've got sustainably sourced fish products. They've got uh, wonderful soups that that uh, have been kind of developed uh, with great recipes. Interestingly as well, is we also have a beer that is uh, sold by Provisions. And I mention it in part because it's a, it's a wonderful story about um, kind of why we're we're in the provisions business to begin with. A long time ago, I think some folks at Patagonia heard about a an ancient grain called Kernza, and Kernza, among its other benefits, has extremely long roots, uh, upwards of eight to ten feet yeah. into the soil, which have a lot of tremendous environmental benefits associated with them both in terms of the kind of climate potential, sequestering soil in a much better way in the soil, but also preventing soil erosion, uh, being more drought resistant, et cetera. And what better thing to do with an ancient grain than to brew beer with it? And so Patagonia Provisions, among other things, has begun to brew beer through Kernza, aptly named Long Root Ale. Interesting. So I want to say going back uh, 10, 12 years ago, about a half a block away from our office here in Santa Monica, there was a Patagonia store. In fact, I believe that the store was actually used for a lot of the commercials and things like that. So it was more of a showplace as well as a store. And I recall going in there and at the point of time, they had some foods, but it was more like airline food, if you would, in the pouches, certainly not uh, the Patagonia beer and so on. And it sounds like you've come a long way away from that. I think so. I mean, this this is a growing business, one that we all are extraordinarily both proud of and dedicated to. Again, I think the purpose is to both promote and present to the public an array of really tasteful and healthy foods grown in the regenerative organic fashion. So that you will see, I think, more and more products being offered. You go to the Provisions website, and, and really, we're very excited about the potential here. Without uh, spilling the beans, if you would, do you think that the Patagonia Provisions line will find its way in traditional supermarkets, on Amazon, you know, every place that goes beyond just the Patagonia stores and websites? Well, I think like many Patagonia products, we're certainly selective for a variety of reasons in where we sell our products. It's very important to us to ensure that our message of the brand and the environmental ethic is properly conveyed. But that being said, I do think that you will see kind of a growth in where you can find these sorts of products. I'm not entirely sure what the distribution channels either are today or will be, but certainly hope that they're more and more available to consumers nationwide. 
Uh, later in the podcast, we're going to be talking to Jeremy Brown, who's an organic cotton farmer in Texas. What are some of the challenges that, that Patagonia has with, you know, being able to source 100% organic cotton? I think these are challenges that we face and in some respects overcame a long time ago. As you and your listeners may or may not know, Patagonia was one of the first brands to really make the decision to only use organic cotton in all of our cotton sportswear and products. And you know, over two decades ago, in, in 1994, the company did make the decision to go 100% organic by 1996. And, and we had you know, less than a year and a half to make that switch for many dozens of products. And of course, less than a year to really line up the fabric. And we worked closely, I think, with folks in Texas and elsewhere to make sure that we had the producers that could accommodate you know, that switch to organic. And, and I'm really proud to say that beginning in 1996, every Patagonia garment made of cotton was organic and has been ever since. So you know, part of our challenge, I think, is to, is to really uh, help spur the growth of organic cotton. We think at Patagonia, it's better in so many ways for the environment. And um, we're trying to basically do what we can to spur the growth of it. I think it's been somewhere hovering around 1% of all cotton production worldwide. But certainly in the last year or two, I think we've seen an uptick in the amount of acreage that's been under growth in our organic cotton fields. So a question, and, and not to be trite here, but why is it important for a consumer to to buy apparel that has 100% organic cotton in it? This is a question, Phil, that resonates with me given the work that I've done in the environmental field for decades. I think that all of us are in certain ways consumers of environmental protection. None of us can afford the ills of dirty water or unclean air or boiled soil, if you will, we all have a vested interest in the ability to continue to have healthy harvests year after year, to continue to be able to fish in unpolluted waters. And all of these things are tied in part to organics, or I should say, certainly negatively impacted by large-scale chemical agriculture. So I think everybody ought to be invested in some way in ensuring that their purchase power and their consumer choices are in alignment with positive environmental development. And that for me, and I think for Patagonia, is why organic and now regenerative organic products make the most sense. Well, Avi, thanks so much for joining us. And you've just given me probably about another 20 reasons to continue to buy Patagonia product. So thank you for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Thank you so much for having me. And now the news you need to know. Farms have the ability to harvest energy along with food. Back in 2008, an engineer named J. David Marley was installing solar panels on the rooftop of an office building, which was an expensive effort. He realized it would be much simpler to build them on the ground. So Marley had the idea to put his solar panels in a farm field, but he wondered how it would impact food production. Now, after more than a decade of experimentation, a study written by 11 scientists gives us some information on this topic. 
In many instances, farmers and the food supply can benefit from having solar panels in the fields, especially as climate change introduces more drought and scalding temperatures to agriculture areas. The study found that the conventional way of installing solar panels tends to magnify heat. The arrays often sit over a bed of white gravel that stifles vegetation and reflects sunlight back up. That increases the temperature and can reduce electricity production between 1 and 3 percent. The study also notes that grazing animals and many vegetable crops can benefit from the partial shade underneath the panels. The resulting stream of renewable electricity essentially amounts to another crop, offering farmers more income and even reducing the nation's emissions from fossil fuel-fired electricity. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory, part of the Department of Energy, has supported multiple solar farming experiments. And in a recent statement, they said that the co-location of solar panels could offer win-win outcomes across many agricultural sectors. The practice of putting solar panels in active farm fields have determined that the panels impacted every aspect of plant activity with different food crops, usually for the better, as well as saving substantial amounts of water for irrigation. We can learn a lot from research, but hands-on learning is also important in agriculture. College Campus Farm lets students engage with the foods they eat. The Duke Campus Farm is a one-acre property maintained by four staff members, 12 student crew members, and several community and student volunteers. The farm provides produce to Duke's dining facilities, and it's also the hub of a community-supported agriculture program that provides community members with boxes of fresh foods. Throughout the fall semester, the farm holds community workdays on Thursday and Sunday afternoons. The farm serves as an integral part of pre-departure programming for many Duke-engaged programs, like those that travel to Rwanda. For example, before students work with their nonprofit partners, the farm acts as their testing ground for different questions that might arise in the program. The farm is a hub for curricular student opportunities and various academic experiences. Saskia Combs, assistant professor of the practice at the John Hope Franklin Humanities Institute, said that the farm's commercial production and academic offerings have increased in scope and scale since she was hired as the farm's program director back in 2014. She has also encouraged the creation of academic connections through both coursework and research collaborations to ensure that the farm supports the university's mission of educating students. And for our final news story today, scientists strive to help produce industry combat foodborne pathogens. A university researcher is seeking a way to make existing scientific literature and data on food safety easily accessible to growers. This project is funded by the Center for Produce Safety and managed by Daniel Karp, an assistant professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at the University of California at Davis. The research entails helping growers use pre-harvest tools to mitigate risks of foodborne pathogens. Oftentimes, research reports cannot be accessed by growers because they're behind paywalls or are written in a way that's difficult to understand. Karp says that it's his team's goal to write a synopsis of these reports that can easily be understood by growers and packers. The team is striving to create a tool that can be used to search for terms and provide a list of ranked articles. Karp recognizes that this style of literature compilation already exists. However, he sees the need for one with specific scope for food safety. Karp and his team are also researching the use of compost and manure on produce farms, 
The study is investigating whether there's an increased food safety risk from potential contributions to foodborne pathogens, or whether there are benefits to using such soil amendments to create microbial communities that can displace foodborne pathogens. Corp says, there's a theory that if compost or manures build up the organic matter in the soils, then this soil would be healthier, with a more diverse community of microbes that could outcompete pathogens over time. Jeremy Brown is a repeat guest on Farm Food Facts. He's a fifth-generation family farmer, and he farms with wife Sarah and three kids on their 3,000-acre farm on the South Plains of West Texas, growing both conventional and organic cotton, wheat, rye, grain, sorghum, peanuts, and sesame. Jeremy and his family is committed to sustainable farming practices, including crop rotation, minimal tillage, and using cover crops. He's a member of the Texas Organic Cotton Marketing Cooperative, the Texas Farm Bureau Plains Cotton Growers, and serves as one of the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance Faces of Farming and Ranching. Jeremy, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you. It's good to be back. So I'm going to start off with a really tough question. From everything that I've heard, 2019 was the worst cotton year. Tell me about it. Well, it, it was for me. Any production agriculture, you try to make the best decisions that you can at that time. And in 2019, actually, we started out the winter with wonderful winter moisture, which is really not the norm for my area of the country. But we had so much winter moisture that we really thought, you know, hey, we've, we're going to have a great crop this year. And so, you know, we probably spent a little more money than we normally do just trying to, you know, get everything ready. And then once we got the crop growing, things started out great. And then it completely turned hot, extremely hot, above average temperatures, and no rain. So our yield potential just really just diminished. You know, hardly, a lot of the cotton wasn't even harvested, and that that was harvested was way below where we need to be to, to break even. And on top of that, the price was at a level that is way below break even. And I was selling cotton that my granddad sold for the same price in the 60s and 70s, and so it's almost a double whammy. The yield was down and the price was really down. And so it was not a fun year. Uh, you know, the joke is hopefully we'll never have another one and, and we'll just block this one out of our memory and going down the road. But uh, glad it's over and, and optimistic that 2020 will be better. So, Jeremy, when we when we look at um, agriculture and certainly the challenges that you're describing, what should we be telling retailers of all kinds, both food and apparel retailers, what should we be telling consumers about, you know, these kinds of issues that you're faced with day in and day out? Well, I, I, you know, I think most people, when I say most people, the average consumer doesn't really understand the risk that that we take as farmers. You know, we do everything we can to, to grow a crop. And, but at the end of the day, we're at the mercy of the weather and we're at, you know, at the mercy of markets that really those two things we have no control over. You know, we try to hedge and try to protect ourselves from a market standpoint. But when you're dealing on a global market, especially in the fibers and the textiles, you know, it's it's just really hard. And, and you know, I think average consumer doesn't realize that. You know, they go to the store and it's always been there and there's just an ample supply. And our production costs, that's the thing, is they, they just continue to go up. And, you know, our equipment costs continue to go up. And really the price that we're getting for these commodities are... I mean, they just don't change much. I mean, you'll have a year that they're better, but a lot of years are they're they're no different than they were 20, 30 years ago. But yet, the cost it takes us to raise that crop is just really skyrocketed over the years. And so, our margins for profitability are just getting 
tighter and tighter and tighter where really, you know, at the end of the day, I, most years we're just hoping to break even and start all over. And that's just, that's just really a, a lot of risk. And I don't know how much longer the farm economy can sustain that because it's so volatile and you got so much risk involved that, you know, you have a year like a 2019 for us in our area that, you know, you just can't have more than one of those years or you're from a farmer's perspective, you're, you're out of business. And that's just, you know, that's, that's what we signed up for as we know that as farmers, that's what we're, you know, that's how we try to manage those risks as much as we can, but it can get quite discouraging and frustrating at the same time. So when we look at cotton in particular, and you describe the year that you've gone through, is this when we start to see more replacement fibers, whether it be synthetic fibers or, you know, I know a lot of people are switching to grow hemp and, and mm -hmm. using, you know, hemp fibers. Is that something that you're going to see happen with the industry? I think you will see a little bit of that. You know, on the synthetics, uh, that's always probably our biggest competition from a cotton standpoint, you know, but there's from a sustainability, I would, I would say, you know, cotton being a natural fiber is always going to be better than any synthetics. And, you know, a lot of research is coming out about synthetic fibers that they're finding in the ocean and stuff. And you know, I think that that just proves the point of how more sustainable cotton is being a natural fiber. The hemp, yeah, that's a, that's the big buzzword. And especially here in West Texas, where we're a dry, arid climate, you know, there's a lot of discussion about hemp, but, you know, time will tell, you know, there's a lot of, for our area, there's just not a lot of infrastructure to, you know, for a guy just to change all of a sudden. I don't think you'll see a big swing. You might see a few acres here and there, but, you know, really where I farm in West Texas, we're just, we're suitable to grow cotton. We grow really good cotton when we get, you know, the rains that we need. And, but, you know, I think if from a consumer standpoint, I, I'm an advocate for cotton because it's a natural fiber. I think we, we grow it very sustainable. I think we do it in a way, especially with the, the technologies and the things that we can do today. You know, our footprint and environment is very minimal, I think. And I think it's a better choice of when you're comparing it to synthetic. Well, and, and also, Jeremy, to be honest with you, just as a consumer standpoint, having worn uh, cotton T-shirts and synthetic T-shirts, there's no question in my mind that, that I want to wear the cotton ones. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I, I heard the other day that somebody said that the synthetics even make you smell. So <laughs> I don't know if that's Ooh. true, but anyways. So I know that the Texas Organic Cotton Marketing Cooperative sells to Patagonia. and. Mm -hmm. Earlier on today's podcast, we talked to Patagonia about some of the things that they're doing. And I understand that you've actually had the executives from Patagonia come and visit the farm. Tell me about that experience and what are the kind of questions that they're asking of you? Yeah, well, first, it was a great experience. You know, most people probably don't know that organic cotton from the U.S. is mostly grown here on the South Plains, this western part of Texas. Because of our climate, we have a kill and freeze that defoliates the plant naturally. Our insect pressure is very minimal. So from an organic standpoint, especially organic cotton standpoint, the South Plains of West Texas is really a prime region for that. And so, yeah, we're one of their suppliers, you know, and they come out and they want to see our production practices and, you know, make sure that it meets what they're wanting. And so we, you know, we try to show them how we grow it and, and try to just you know, give them an opportunity, whether that's, they've been out at different times of the year. A lot of times they come out during harvest season and, and, you know, just spend time with us. And, and we just try to show them that we're doing it the most sustainable way that we can from a organic practice. You know, you're limited on your weed control. And, and so we, we're limited on what we can do to control our weeds. And so we try to just explain to them, 
what we're doing and hopefully it, you know, meets what they're wanting and hopefully we can continue that relationship. Not only with Patagonia, but other people, other companies that come visit, do you find on average that they really have done their homework before they've hit the farm and are asking, you know, great questions or giving you great suggestions or is it you're teaching cotton 101? Um, you know, I think we're, I think they might've done their homework or read an article or saw something that in theory makes great sense. But when you get it down to practicality over thousands of acres, there's a disconnect there. And so, you know, not that we don't, you know, we're not going to get into a debate with them or anything, but we just try to show them realistically what we can do with our climate, our conditions. You know, they might've read an article about something working in another part of the country where they get 30, 40 inches of rain. Well, we're dealing with 13, 15 inches of annual rainfall and just different different climates. And so we, do, we just try to explain to them the best way that we can and just show them. And, you know, at, you know that's, that's part of our job as farmers is telling our story, whether that's organic or not, because there's this disconnect now from farm to the consumer uh, and a lot of misinformation out there about production practices. And so, you know, I think anytime we can tell our story, whether that's organically or not, you know, that's why we invite them out. It's one thing to sit in an office and read an article or something, but so you get your hands out there and actually see what we're dealing with. You know, that's one of the things I love about the organic side of my business is because it is such a niche market. I get to actually have more of those conversations with those people than my non-organic that gets shipped off to another country and I don't know where it goes. Well, Jeremy, keep up the great work. Here's to a fabulous 2020 so you can make up for 2019. <laughs> and thanks again for joining us on Farm Food Facts. Yes, I always enjoy it. Thank you. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.